Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com We all know that Canada is not a nuclear power, it is not a military power, we're a middle-sized power, and what we're good at is convening. I believe that we have uh, exhausted inventory from the Canadian Armed Forces. I am hopeful that the paradigm shift in energy policy that we are seeing today will cause a rethink. You know what you need to liquefy natural gas? Cold. You know what we have in Canada? Lots of cold. In fact, it is our most abundant natural resource if you look out the window. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and teenage Patrick Brown's hair. Today, the ban on Russian oil continues to reverberate in Canadian politics. But can Canada solve the world's energy crisis? And COVID has broken a lot of our assumptions about government spending. How will that affect the upcoming budget? We're getting one in two weeks. So let's talk about it. Joining me this week from Calgary, where the premier is desperately clinging to his job, Jason Markasov, contributor at McLean's. Hello. I am desperately clinging to my cup of coffee this morning. Hello. <laughs> in Vancouver, where gas broke $2 per liter, Caroline Elliott, freelance writer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. And from Ottawa, where air horns are officially legal now, Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic. Wait, what? Let's get into it. <laughs> so things are still bad. There is the ongoing pandemic, a war, and gas prices have now reached record highs. But Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, ever the optimist, has identified an opportunity for Canada. Uh, for too long, there's been a policy setting uh, that has also sought to impede the construction of energy infrastructure that has limited our ability to compete with and displace energy that comes from unstable sources. Gas prices were going up in Canada even before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, forgive me for sounding like my high school economics teacher, but it's your basic supply and demand problem. The world economy is waking up from two years of COVID lockdowns and using more oil and gas. We're starting to drive back to work. The oil-guzzling cruise industry and airlines are making a comeback. Oil demand is really, really high, but oil production isn't catching up as quickly. It's just reaching pre-pandemic levels. And now, with Canada banning crude oil imports from Russia, as well as Western oil companies leaving the country, the price of oil and gas has skyrocketed. And I guess, side note, the largest oil and gas companies made a combined $174 billion in profits in the last nine months because of these insane prices. 
With ripple effects on everything from transportation to food prices, the general public can't escape from the messy, uncomfortable questions around oil production, global politics, and the future of energy. Enter Jason Kenney, a man always ready for an opportunity to promote Canadian oil, touting, quote, energy security, a rebrand of the ethical oil debate of years past. And he's not alone. Over in Newfoundland and Labrador, Premier Andrew Fury is urging the federal government to greenlight the controversial Bay du Nord deep-sea drilling project to increase Canada's oil production. So, Jason, walk us through this. What does Jason Kenney think Canada can do here? Jason Kenney thinks exactly what he's thought, and people of his ilk have uh, thought for years. The major difference is that now there's more of an audience for it. Even citing this, this this whole ethical oil argument has been around for a long time. It was popularized by uh, everyone's dear friend of uh, the Canadian discourse, Ezra Levant. The big argument is that we should support Canadian oil because we're a democratic, stable country, and we shouldn't buy oil from some of the other national sources of it, um, which are not good countries or despotic countries or, you know, dictatorships. Saudi Arabia, we know what they do. Venezuela, other Mideast um, dictatorships, um, and Russia, of course, has been a whipping post for, uh, for conservatives and uh, others for a long time. Nobody was, until recently, was really arguing that we should be shipping all of our oil to Europe to wean them off of Russian oil. That was a, not a very big argument. Mm-hmm. Europe is has been generally fine getting Russian oil. They don't love Russia, but uh, it's a neighbor. It's close, and their supply of oil and, more importantly, natural gas has been very reliable. Of course, this was all before the Ukraine invasion. Mm-hmm. And now everybody is kind of nodding along with what Jason Kenney is saying. Uh, that, yeah, it's a bad thing to get oil from Russia because Russia is terrible. It's a terrible thing to get natural gas from Russia. So this slots very easily into the argument that Kenny and Levant and uh, a lot of the people in the oil patches and federal conservatives have been making for a long time that more Canadian oil is not only good and responsible for our economy, it's also good for energy security. Eventually, for a lot of people, it starts to uh, supplant uh, their thoughts about the urgency of climate change. So just for today, let's entertain Kenny seriously. Can we even do this? Caroline, Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guibault told the National Observer that it's not going to happen. He says fighting climate change remains a priority. And given that stance from the federal government, is it actually possible for anything to change here, for us to, you know, supply the world with Canadian oil? Well, I think there's, I guess, different answers for the short term than there are for the long term when it comes to that question. I do think that when we're talking about getting Canadian products to market, it's less, I think, about getting Canadian oil to Europe than it is about replacing Russian oil in the United States. And the United States was importing something around 700,000 barrels per day of Russian oil last year, and they've banned that. Now they're going hat in hand to places like Venezuela, where, as you know, they've been accused of atrocities and crimes against humanity by the UN Human Rights Council, among many other horrible things that happen there. And I think the argument is, why go to Venezuela if your next door neighbor, who shares many of the same values, commitment to democracy, strict environmental regulations, labor codes, all those kinds of things, uh, why not go there? And so I think Jason Kenney's criticism is around the lack of readiness or amenability to that idea at the federal level. Canada and Venezuela have two of the world's three largest oil reserves. They're both oil sands extraction methods for the most part. The difference is Venezuela is able to get its product to market. I think they move something like 900,000 barrels per day. 
Keystone Pipeline, in contrast, in Canada, would have moved something like 830,000 barrels per day. It would actually replace the amount that, I mean, if we were actually producing that much, it would replace the amount and get that to the U.S. refineries on the Gulf Coast that would have been otherwise coming from Russia. So I do get the argument, and I actually find it compelling. This money is literally filling Putin's ability to develop nuclear arms, to wage his war in Ukraine. Murad, jump in here. I know this week the International Energy Agency is hosting a meeting of energy ministers in Paris, and Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson expects to know how much Canada can ship to Europe by then. What capacity do we have to actually provide some relief in this space, either domestically or internationally? Well, I think, you know, the prime minister was asked about this at some point last week and sort of said, you know, we don't necessarily have the facilities to do it. And the the sort of liquefying the national gas to get it on the tankers, to get it across the ocean is part of the problem. It's not just uh, energy, right? Like Russia and Ukraine export it. I think the technical term is shit done of wheat to the world that feeds like a whole bunch of different countries. You know, Carolyn was saying like, there's a difference between the short term and the long term. And there's an argument that by sort of enabling the presence of the Russian energy sector in the global supply of this stuff for years by not displacing it, you know, we've been filling Putin's coffers. I note that, you know, when Boris Johnson this week needed somewhere to go to find more energy supply, he went to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, is waging its own war currently in Yemen, and we are filling its coffers by buying its oil. But the thing is, that's how global economies work. Like, the sort of uh, economics of Saudi oil are better than the economics of Canadian oil, as I understand it, or have historically been, they can support a lower price. Decades of foreign policy have helped uh, build that. And we aren't so concerned about Saudi oil right now, are we? Because there's a sort of handy target in the Russians. Uh, And I think there's a version of this fight for like every single commodity. So one I wanted to bring up, uh, and this might be a little bit of a torturous example, so I apologize, is palladium which is a metal that Russia exports something like 30% of the world's palladium. And a shortage of global palladium, even before the crisis, was leading to people stealing catalytic converters from cars. So like thieves in North America are stealing the things that clean the exhaust of cars and like reselling the metal in them. Uh, So it was already a global shortage and now Russia's come onto the market, you know. I don't see necessarily the same arguments happening about palladium or cobalt-60, which is a nuclear material that is used in sterilization that Russia produces a ton of, which is all to say like, you know, we started out this by asking how much is this about sort of domestic political mileage to use a gas pun versus sort of the reality of the global geopolitical situation. The answer is probably a little bit of both. As the Prairie panelist here, I just want to clarify one thing regarding the measurements that uh, Rod talked about. There are four pecks to a bushel and 150 million bushels to a shit ton. <laughs> Thank you. I do want to talk about the projects that could help here, you know, the long-term solutions to this conversation. I mean, last week we learned that the cost of the Trans Mountain Pipeline has tripled. It's now expected to cost $21.4 billion to build because of cost overruns and construction delays, and taxpayers are on the hook for that. So that's a big problem that we need to solve before we even entertain the idea of becoming the world's energy supplier. And then on the Keystone XL side of things, this was a pipeline that, if people will remember, 
Joe Biden canceled when he came to office. But Republicans actually introduced a bill in Congress called the American Energy Independence from Russia Act that has a provision that would reauthorize the Keystone XL and remove the requirement for a presidential permit. Now, this bill only has a 30% chance of being passed through, according to reporting. And I know that Premier Kenny and Alberta are also trying to take it over. So, Caroline, when we're talking about this, there are physical things we could do, right? But it would probably be years or decades down the line. How should we be seriously considering this if we are going to? With something like uh, Keystone, I think I just read recently that TC Energy who's the private sector proponent of that project, has no intention of restarting this project. And I think that may have something to do with, and this is total speculation, but it may have something to do with what I perceive as a fairly hostile environment to this sort of project in the Canadian context and even in the U.S. with the Democrats not exactly, I think, wanting to jump on board restarting a project that they just cancelled. It's terrible optics. But at the same time, we saw, I mean, when it comes to supplying the rest of the world, there was Energy East, there was Enbridge, there's other proposed projects to get Canadian product to market that have also been cancelled. So Canada essentially cannot get their product to Tidewater on the east or west coast, and it has trouble getting something built down to the United States as well. So I think there's a whole bunch of things in the way of, of these things actually coming to fruition. And then, of course, there is the natural gas side, which I mentioned earlier. Of course, it's not just oil that provides various kinds of energy. There is natural gas as well. That's the big one that we saw um, causing issues in in Germany with the cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 project. Uh, And there's talk about whether or not Canada can supply some of that product as well. And again, it's a difficult situation. There are facilities. uh, LNG Canada is technically under construction, and we're all very familiar with the coastal gas link pipeline. So you can see, I mean, of course, with the Wet'suwet'en situation uh, in northern British Columbia, there's all kinds of considerations and factors that go into getting projects built or not. And many of them are, if you're an investor in that industry, are things that send messages that perhaps you don't want to spend your money there in Canada to get those products to market. You'd rather spend it elsewhere because they have easier regulatory environments. They don't have uh, the same Indigenous consultation and accommodation requirements. But I do think Canada should absolutely be playing a role in securing that long-term supply to the world in terms of natural gas and oil. Because if we don't, then it leads us to a situation where you have basically the world funding tyrants like Putin, like Maduro, like whoever you want to name, Iran. And that means that your hands are tied when it comes to dealing with bad actions by these nations as well. And we're seeing that when we saw the, what was it, seven out of the nine largest banks out of Russia being pulled from the SWIFT system. Well, why weren't uh, two of them pulled? Because they facilitated the energy transactions. And the very worst part is it pushes prices up because of supply and demand, which is what you talked about in the very beginning of this conversation, which in turn actually enriches the people who were developing the products in the first place. So Putin right now is benefiting. I mean, he's not benefiting in in the grand scheme of things, obviously with all the sanctions, but he is benefiting from higher oil prices because he's getting more money for his product. The other long-term path forward is a greener world economy. And if Canada is going to entertain the idea of boosting, you know, the world's energy supply, where does that leave us with our climate goals? We've committed to net zero emissions by 2050, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by at least 40% relative to 2005 by 2030. You know, we just had an IPCC report that urged us in no uncertain terms to keep increasing the pace and make rapid deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, any increase in our energy production is going to thwart all of that, 
right? This is where we're really in treading in tricky territory because at the same time, we're talking about short-term issues and long-term issues. It takes time to get anything moving, which is why you're also hearing the International Energy Agency, and I'm guessing when the energy minister is convened, you'll hear more about this, um, is do what we've done in the past, especially in the 70s when there was a big um, oil crisis, and that is reduce reliance. I mean, we can reduce reliance by reducing demand. And so you've seen the International Energy Agency calling for city uh, congestion fees to reduce demand, lower speeds to reduce demand. Um, This is all flashbacks to the 70s, back when the U.S. actually went permanently to daylight saving time, to use another uh, contemporary debate, to uh, lower uh, reliance on lights and electricity and other energy use. That is actually an immediate short-term thing that uh, people and societies can do to lower the demand and lower the money being spent to Russia right away, uh, in a way that's much faster than uh, ramping up cane production, building pipelines. Of course, this is going to fit into yet another contemporary problem which is we're just coming out of the situation with COVID where people don't like being told what to do with their lives and how to operate their cars and where to go and what to do and how to act and how fast to drive. So while it makes sense in these situations for a president like Biden and people like Trudeau and Boris Johnson to uh, say those things, I don't know if the political climate is going to be there. So we talk about, you know, what are our long-term interests? There is a long-term interest, of course, to uh, curb oil use overall for climate change. Uh, There is a long-term interest in reducing the amount of money going to bad actors in the world, on the world stage, like Saudi Arabia, like Russia. And we have to figure out how to balance all those. And one certain way is to reduce uh, usage. But of course, that only, not only hits the resistance of don't tread on me, man, but also, you know, it affects people's lives. People can't just stop driving um, because gas price is too high. We have set up our whole lives around driving, uh, home heating, so we cannot just shut off things despite what the idealists want us to do. Every solution to this is going to take a while in realist terms. To look ahead, uh, Murad, you're in Ottawa. You're watching all the politicians talk about this and navigate this. What do Canadians across the country need to know about how this conversation is unfolding in Parliament Hill and and maybe what we should be looking out for or holding their feet to the fire for? I think you're going to see it, you know, play out in the House, which is back this week, for sure. I don't know that you're necessarily going to see it play out any different than Conservatives sort of repeating their lines about the Trudeau government stifling the energy sector or trying to kill it or whatever rhetoric they're using in any given week and the sort of Trudeau government insisting that they, you know, have climate ambitions and they're not really actually getting in the way of anything, so stop talking about it. The sort of regulatory and policy landscape has been set, and the one thing that you sort of can always count on in Ottawa is once the moment passes, the policy continues to chug along the same. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mm-hmm. 
Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Caroline? I want to talk about convening because we can't just let that uh, whole thing that happened, was it last week, uh, go. So that was when Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Melanie Jolie, said that Canada is not a nuclear power, it's not a military power, we're a middle-sized power, and what we're good at is convening and making sure that diplomacy is happening. And she was widely, I think, uh, taken to task for that comment. And, I, you know, I feel bad for her because you say a lot of stuff out loud um, and sometimes it just doesn't come out very well. And that was definitely one of those times. But I want to focus on the word convening because I was thinking if they're so good at convening, then maybe they're really good at convening the House of Commons as well. So I wanted to, to check back on the numbers and see how they've done. And <laughs> I, was, I was reading about it and I learned that since the mid-1970s, the sittings of the House have been an average of 123 days a year. Since the Liberals formed government in 2015, the House sittings have decreased drastically to an average of 105 days a year. And since their minority government, and to be fair, and I will say COVID happened and, and things got a little weird there, we've seen them sit for less than 100 days in 2021, 86 days in 2020, and 75 days in, in 2019. So, my point of order is, if convening is our strength, I'd really hate to see our weaknesses. Not a point of order, but the backbench is great at convening. That's all I can say. Our Zoom is pretty hype. Madam Speaker, point of order. What is your point of order, Jason? There are sure are a lot of journalists who are shaking their heads uh, this weekend as Patrick Brown, or as he's known in his uh, leadership campaign, Mayor Brown, put out a platform for Western Canada that, that includes this beguiling line. Enable greater access for journalists from all regions of the country to the parliamentary press gallery to ensure widespread coverage of issues facing regions like Western Canada within the national news narrative. To which most journalists, those who swear and those who didn't, said some variation of what the fuck. What is the role of a <laughs> prime minister or party leader's role in convening to Linda, or a phrase from Caroline, the press gallery, or concluding who asks questions or what. That sounds dictatory to me. I, I heard people musing about whether, oh, this is access for the rebel or uh, Ezra Levant's rebel alliance of uh, kind of rogue conservative media outlets. I have a pretty certain theory that we should never underestimate how lazy some leadership candidates are in putting together policy. In this case, he just cut and paste something quite literally from Michelle Rempel's policy platform from a while ago uh, called the Buffalo Declaration, this West Once in Alberta grievance document, uh, which recommended a whole bunch of changes or reform to improve the standing of, the, of Western Canada, particularly Alberta, in Confederation. But I don't think this is any kind of, you know, ulterior, weird press control, media access, pro-Ezra Levant thing from Patrick Brown. I just think... There are a lot of leadership candidates who sometimes don't actually care about policy, but they just want to scoop up policy from wherever. And they assume that people actually don't care about policy. They just want to know that you have policy. So he just cut and pasted something from Michelle Rempel, who just came on to his leadership campaign, and just put it there without thinking about it. So not a point of order, but I've got three points to make myself. Number one, maybe I need to strike convening from the record entirely. Maybe I need to make that decision and add it to our glossary of banned words on the backbench. Two, Patrick Brown's website is fighterleaderwinner.ca. What the F is that? Like, who's going to go to that website to find this policy? Three, can we just learn to read through the bullshit? Please and thank you. 
Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Murad? It's really more of an endorsement. But uh, now that uh, Jason has opened the sort of virtual door to the conservative leadership race, I wanted to um, call people's attention to this lengthy Q&A that my former colleague, uh, McLean's former, because I am former McLean's, in Ottawa, Shannon Proudfoot published last week with Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev is a very interesting sort of character in Ottawa beyond uh, who he is as a politician. Uh, you know, he elicits very strong opinions, let's say, from people on both sides of the political aisle and all sort of places in the political spectrum. But one of the things he doesn't do a lot is sit down and talk to someone for an extended period of time. And that's a little bit of a pity because when you talk to Pierre Polyev for an extended period of time, you can, in fact, talk to him quite deeply about policy. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we're starting to see this leadership race really play out in sort of little attack spots that Jenny Byrne keeps dropping on Twitter or, you know, Patrick Brown and uh, Pierre Polyev tweeting at each other for days on end, neither side willing to let the other person have the last word in the argument. But Pierre Polyev doesn't do this very often. And he's taken to doing this thing in the House of Commons where he'll come out of, you know, question period or whatever, and there's a scrum of uh, reporters assembled. And he will effectively give a statement, not really answer a question, um, sort of lead off with a statement, even if he's not announcing anything, and he's got a staffer there to to sort of video it and, and cut it up for social media. He's not necessarily really engaging with the press. In this case, he sat down with Shannon for an hour, and I think it's an example of what really sort of deep political reporting from someone who's able to take a step back and really assess things can produce. Truly, like getting an insight into how a politician thinks is not a thing that we get a lot of time to do as a sort of press corps in Canada. And I think it's really valuable because, you know, whatever you think of Pierre Polyev, if he is to be conservative leader, you need to understand how he thinks. And this profile and this Q&A really get you there. So I would encourage our listeners to go out and read it. I mean, not a point of order, but here, here, more of that. The federal budget will be coming out sometime in the next few weeks. It will be the Liberals' first post-pandemic budget. For the last two years, the government has been spending at unprecedented levels, with programs like CERB and wage subsidies for employers, as well as vaccines, support for health care, and more. Now, an analysis by the Toronto Star estimated that in the first 13 months of the pandemic, federal and provincial governments together spent $1.5 billion per day on pandemic measures. For comparison, that's more than twice the cost of World War II when adjusted for inflation. And now, hopefully, we're heading into a period of recovery. But retail prices are shooting up, housing remains ridiculously expensive, we have big new programs like subsidized daycare, and there are calls for increased military spending in support of Ukraine. So what comes now? Will we continue to spend our way out of our problems and kick the debt down the road, or are we coming straight out of this two-year nightmare into a period of austerity? Murad, I know you love budget, so give us the big picture here. How are you expecting the government to approach this one? I'm not sure whether to take that as an insult or a compliment. Um, it is a compliment, obviously. So you said in your intro, this is the Liberals' first post-pandemic budget, and that's absolutely true. But in a weird way, the Liberals have been trying to do their first post-pandemic budget or fall economic statement since basically March 2020. You'll recall there was no 2020 budget, and every time Christy Freeland has gotten up to present like one of these documents since, she's 
talked about finishing the fight against COVID-19 and then going on to do other things. And we never seem to finish the damn fight. So it is interesting that this may ultimately be that document. And I wanted to, to draw your attention to something she said at the end of last year when she was announcing the last the mid, what some we sometimes call a mini budget, which is like the fall economic statement, she said, this year's budget, the 2022 budget, will be the Liberal government's, quote, master plan for the Canadian economy going forward, which I'm sure is going to excite some conspiracy theorists in, uh, let's say, at least one of the other federal parties. But one of the questions I have is, what more is there to do? The last budget was $101 billion in new spending. In any other year, that would be a ridiculously large sum of money. There were programs in that budget. I was talking to some liberal staffers uh, recently about a a $4 billion program that the government uh, announced in that budget that just got lost because $4 billion wasn't enough to make waves in that program. Like, I have made half of my career in Ottawa reporting off a program that started at a billion dollars. Like, the sums of money we're talking about are... Incredible. And the question now becomes, when you've done all of that, how do you do your next act? How do you create a budget that stimulates economic growth? Because ultimately, that is the thing that we need to get out of the pandemic, right? We need to get businesses investing and we need to get the economy growing again. Obviously, in the last budget, they did a bunch of spending around COVID supports, continuing COVID supports, all that stuff. But there was also spending allocated for things like uh, technology adoption for small businesses, for AI, for biotech, which seems connected to the pandemic, but is in fact money that goes out very long term, money for electric vehicles and so on. And they've started rolling out that money now. It takes a little while for those programs to be put in place. Some would say the Liberal government takes a little longer than they really should or anyone has any right to to get programs running, but they're running now. And so the question becomes, Politically, how does the Liberal government make a splash and say, look, you were right to re-elect us last year because here is how we're going to drag us into sort of a a new era of long-term growth, while at the same time managing to do that with sums of money that I say cannot. It's hard to fathom how they could conceivably be as large as how we've spent over the last few years. I think it's intriguing that, you know, we we have senior government sources telling, for example, the CBC that this is going to be a, quote, back to basics budget. What are the basics in this new era? I'm not sure. and, And they haven't been able to define it. And then on the bright side of everything getting more expensive, the government might actually have more money to spend. Trevor Tombe, the University of Calgary economist, said that the government could lower our almost $48 billion projected deficit by $5 billion just from the tax money they get from oil and gas companies because they're earning a shit ton from higher gas prices. That's more than the entire planned budget for childcare. So it seems like there is a shift in the government's approach to spending, where the money is coming from right now. And it seems that there's also a change in priority among the public around things like healthcare, childcare, senior care, and working conditions after the pandemic. So, Caroline, do you think we'll continue to see bigger governments stick around for the long term in this budget? Or is this shift going to be signaled somehow in this document? It's hard to say. I mean, I've seen the same speculation you have about the back to basics, but I also think they've really kind of hung their hat on some of this stuff in terms of affordability measures like childcare, like rectifying the catastrophe we're seeing in housing prices and that sort of thing. So I don't know how you kind of go back on that. But at the same time, I 
I personally would love to see a back-to-basics budget. What does that look like, Caroline? For example, uh, you mentioned the increased revenues from oil and gas. I think uh, one excellent signal would be not using that to fund more programs, but instead looking to reduce the amount of deficit that we're running up this year. One exception for me, though, would be the defense budget. I do think we should be uh, increasing that. I think recent events have shown that we should be. The concern for me, though, is it amounts to something like tens of billions of dollars to get ourselves up to the 2% NATO defense uh, spending commitment. That, to me, tells me how deficient we've been on that front. So certainly no increase. I would love to see them dial back a little bit if they can on on, on some fronts. And it's it's hard to pick and choose which programs specifically uh, you'd want to do that to. But I mean, I would love to see them actually showing a really strong signal on that front that our natural resources have a huge amount to give to the world. And that economic growth when prices are high could actually help alleviate some of the financial pressures that we're seeing. Jason, let's let's talk about the defense spending, because this was a promise that Trudeau was elected on, that he would increase defense spending. And Defense Minister Anita Anand said that a significant increase in defense spending is definitely on the table for this budget. She also told CBC Power and Politics that Canada has, quote, exhausted the inventory of equipment in the Canadian armed forces that could be supplied to Ukraine. At the same time, I also know that I don't think Canadian voters care about military and, and defense spending. So how is this tension going to play out with this overall budget? Historically, Canadians haven't cared about defense spending. That's uh, the domain of academics, um, you know, defense lobbyists. Um, I think that we're in a different place. I think that Canadians are now acutely aware of our firepower, our military capacity, and it's not just because of Russia. Um, Within the last 12 months, we've had two cases where Canada's military capacity has uh, been seen as lacking uh, as to what we want to do, talking about the Ukraine war and also uh, our ability to airlift people out of Afghanistan. Uh, We were very limited and constrained in what we could do. We were relying on other countries' air forces to take people who were supposed to come to Canada out, which does not look good for Canada. So I think that there is an appetite to do more. I think that people also realize, you know, that security is uh, a bigger issue, that we, you know, we are much closer to a major world war than we seriously have been, uh, maybe since the Cold War. So in many people's lifetimes um, who are watching this stuff, then there's certainly awareness that we are a neighbor of Russia in the Arctic. And we know the shambles that Canadian uh, military procurement is in. So I think the appetite, the public appetite, is there for increased military spending like there has never been. I might be mistaken, but I believe that the Trudeau government has upped military spending a decent amount. We're not getting anywhere near that 2% target. Yeah, so currently we spend 1.39% of our GDP on military spending. Yeah, and as Caroline says, that's so we'd have to increase our military capacity by a lot. We're seeing uh, countries in Europe do that really fast and really incredibly. Do we need to do it the same extent as Germany is necessarily? Maybe not. But I think that there's a will. Uh, there's a public will. And I think you're going to see the Trudeau government responding to that will in the budget. So Jason was pointing to the shift in the will. And uh, I was just pulling up the conservative platform for the last election when Aaron O'Toole, who you may recall, was in the armed forces, did not in fact 
promise a, a dollar figure. He just promised that they do procurement better. So even the guy who was pointing out on stage that he was the only person who'd served wasn't necessarily saying, let's spend more. He was saying sort of, let's spend more smartly and let's fix these problems. And I think that speaks to, to pull in an analogy from our uh, the first section of the, of the book, you know, you can uh, shove more money into the defense spending pipeline. Canada's problem has historically been it's not really good at getting the money flowing through and getting anything coming out of it. But some of these problems are just like the problems of Canada, right? Like if you're going to build ships, where are you going to build them? And are you going to build them in Quebec? You better build them in Quebec. You must build them in Quebec. How dare you not build them in Quebec? And, you know, Halifax and other places. But And so those things are just like, those are machinery of government problems. And like, I know I talk about this a lot, but the government coming out and saying in the April budget, you know, we're going to hit the 2% commitment, uh, which by the way, is a commitment, not a target. Um, It's a thing we have said we will do uh, and then don't. We're not alone in this. Lots of other countries do. But the government saying, you know, we've put this number with a lot of zeros in it in the budget to signal our commitment to more military spending. Actual implementation of military spending is not something that any Canadian government has been particularly good at in recent decades. But also, frankly, implementation of major programs that the government has committed to, that is a thing that deserves more scrutiny in all domains with this particular government. It's so funny to me because I was reminding myself of our conversation we had last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, regarding uh, Saudi Arabia and Canada's arms contracts with them. And I want to say, like, how come we're able to, like, build arms for other countries and supply them those arms, no problem. But then when it comes to supplying ourselves, we like just can't like we get into this procurement debacle. And as, as, as Marad said, it's all about like pleasing like political demographics and stuff like that. If we were only as good at arming ourselves as we are at arming Saudi Arabia, then maybe we would have uh, a better military on our hands. That's a hot take. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're waiting for this document to drop, let me be a Disney kid for a second. When you wish upon a budget, what would you love to get? (laughs) Caroline. A signal that they're aware of the inflationary pressures and that they're going to try to take a cautious approach to spending plans. Jason, one wish on a budget. Affordable housing and uh, squeezing on some of the benefits of uh, of homeownership and flipping houses for uh, for individuals. They've talked about that a lot. They can just keep building houses, but uh, that's only one part of the affordable housing puzzle. And Murad, since he loves budgets more than anyone, one wish on a budget. Measures to boost business spending on R&D, specifically a reform to the SHRED program, uh, which is the most important $3 billion nobody pays any attention to. I'm sure he'll come back and talk about it in a future episode. Okay, as always, there's so much happening in the world and in this country. So uh, time for very quick rapid-fire questions where we cover some of the things we haven't gotten to. Jason, I want you to rank these four events happening on April 1st in order of importance. An increase in the federal minimum wage, the end of pre-arrival COVID testing at our borders, an increase in the carbon tax, my birthday. Go. Okay. First, Fatima's birthday. I cannot imagine what it's like to have your birthday on April Fool's Day. Uh, Fatima, you're stronger than I know. Pre-arrival COVID testing, carbon tax, minimum wage. Murad, a new memo says the Freedom Convoy cost Ottawa $36.3 million. If you were given $36 million to spend in Ottawa, what would you do with it? I would buy one more train for the old train. (laughs) But with round... This is very important. Train with round wheels. You heard it here first, Murad for mayor. And Caroline, you have to choose a best friend. You just have to. 
Teenage Patrick Brown, or Teenage Pierre Polyev. Choose wisely and cite your reasons. I would choose Teenage Pierre Polyev because I don't think I could be teenage best friends with someone who has a poster of Jean Charest on their wall. (laughs) Or that hair. That hair was the deal breaker for me. Or the Nick Carter Backstreet Boys era hair. I haven't read the full interview with uh, with Polyev uh, by Shannon. I should have. It's a shame on me. But did she ask what posters uh, Polyev had in his room as a teen? Because I want to know now. Tragically, no. But I'll try and work it into the next scrum I'm in. Preston Manning is my guess. I love it. <laughs> like I, ha- I had Leonardo DiCaprio, and like my guy friends had Cindy Crawford. This is dating me, but like this is. Wait, was it Leo with the same hair? As Patrick okay. Brown, or, or Leo with better hair. Leo's hair was so much cuter than Patrick Brown's. Oh my god. Okay, on that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. We're still weekly. So next week, we'll have an in-depth discussion with someone who is impacting or being impacted by Canadian politics. We have a new deal for those of you who love Canada Land's politics shows and want to show some support. For $2.99 a month, you can support The Backbench, Commons, and Wag the Dog if you listen on Apple Podcasts. You'll get ad-free episodes of these shows as well as bonus content. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts or by going to the link in our show notes. If you have questions, concerns, rants for us, please email backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed, and you can find my work on the Narwhal. Murad, where can people follow your analysis as we get closer to budget day? My budget story will be at thelogic.co, and I'm on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. Caroline, thank you for giving us the idea for the energy security conversation. Where can people follow you to learn more? Uh, They can read me as a contributor at thehub.ca, and they can find me on Twitter at NorthVanCaroline. That's at NVanCaroline. And Jason, where can people follow you to get more banned words from Canadian politics? I am at Markasoff on the Twitter machine. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione and Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.